Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private. And in today's podcast, we're going to focus on the economy and the markets as we close out the third quarter and look towards the end of 2020. I've asked two of my colleagues to join me today to share some of their thoughts. Rich Gracefetter is a senior equity portfolio manager here at Boston Private, and Ryan McQuilkin, who some of you may recognize from a previous podcast, is the head of our fixed income team. First, let me frame out a few of our thoughts on the economy. After the first two quarters of the year brought us all that COVID-19 could offer from an investment perspective, the third quarter was all about the recovering global economy and a sense of optimism that the recovery could be sustained. While the summer months over the past several years have been rather volatile, this summer couldn't have been better for risk investors in general. Stocks, high yield bonds, and commodities all benefited from resurging sentiment, while the Fed's continued drumbeat of low rates pressured high quality bond returns. In fact, at the end of August, the tech sector was flying high, the expiration of the expanded unemployment benefits from the CARES Act had not yet hit economic data, and investors were hopeful that with a vaccine just around the corner, all was proceeding according to plan. September, however, was an entirely different story. As you recall, at the beginning of 2020, the biggest source of potential disruption was expected to be the November elections here in the United States. And so it was not surprising to see a bearish shift as campaigning began in earnest. In addition, while the odds were high through much of August that another fiscal stimulus package would be passed to continue the good work of the CARES Act, it became clear, particularly after the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that this would prove to be a much more difficult task than anticipated. Despite the big swings in September, the strong gains from July and August still propelled the equity markets higher for the quarter. While we certainly would not proclaim victory from the economic destruction resulting from the March and April lockdowns, there has been continued improvement in the data that underlies our economic and market indicators. While most of our indicators were red over the past several months, the global economy has now likely moved out of recession and the massive monetary and fiscal stimulus are acting as clear tailwinds for a recovery. Notable improvement, which has resulted in an upgrade of our indicators, are narrowing bond spreads, the stabilizing European economy, and the red hot housing market. The employment situation remains challenging, especially as job gains have started to moderate for lower income workers while a second wave of job cuts at larger companies may have just begun. In addition, consumer confidence remains fickle and has certainly been impacted as of late by the lack of progress on a new fiscal stimulus package and the upcoming election. The biggest drivers for us to consider as we set our macro outlook remain employment, monetary policy, and earnings. We are cautious as it relates to the sustainability of outsized job gains, but we are comforted by the Fed's commitment to low rates, at least in the near term, and we are optimistic that earnings growth will increase as we move into 2021. With that, let me turn over to our experts. 
Rich, I'll start with you. Can you give us a sense of how the equity markets performed in the quarter broadly? Sure. Thanks, Shannon. So the S&P 500 for the quarter was up almost 9% and closing out the quarter year to date, it was up about 5.5%. Emerging markets did reasonably well and they did uh, even a little better than the S&P, up about 9.5%. But year to date, they still lag a bit. They're down about 1%. And then developed markets, particularly for the most part, that includes Europe, uh, were up about 4.8%. And then year to date, they still lag materially or down about 7%. Real estate continues to lag a little bit, and then commodities have been a little slower to recover with oil particularly pressuring that sector while gold has been an outstanding performer. As we drill down a little bit further, can you give some color on what sectors or factors were winners and losers over the past three months? Sure. Within the U.S., the consumer discretionary sector was the strongest in the quarter. Materials followed, and then industrials. And both, all three of those are generally considered more of your cyclical sectors. Energy, on the other hand, was a significant lagger. It was the only underperformer in the quarter, and it declined about 19%, while real estate and financials were the next two laggards, but they were both at least positive for the quarter. From a factor perspective, uh, large cap, as represented by the Russell 1000, outperformed small cap. The large cap was up about 10%, and small cap were up about 5%. And then growth, again, materially outperformed value. is something we've been watching for some time. And growth was up about 13%, while value was up about 5%. Dividend-oriented stocks still lagged a little during the quarter, but not as much as they did in the first quarter. And then companies with higher U.S. revenue exposure had higher positive earnings revisions, which is another trend that we're watching. And again, that goes to the fact that U.S. companies and U.S. stocks seem to be recovering a little faster than some of the European and to some extent the emerging markets. Do you find that surprising given the U.S. government's reaction to COVID-19 and our inability to keep our caseloads lower than we've seen in other parts of the, of the world? Uh, not really. In this case, the, we have to separate out the government response from the business and the economic impact. So part of the reason, ironically, that the U.S. caseload is a little higher uh, is because American consumers are back out uh, spending more than uh, in other parts of the world. So it isn't, I mean, you have to be very careful which companies and countries and geographies you look at. But uh, broadly speaking, across the U.S., uh, consumer spending has rebounded pretty quickly. And that's another metric that we're, that we're watching. So the fact that uh, the government, in, as some will argue, has bumbled the response, uh, it has had a smaller impact, quite frankly, on the economic trends and the consumer spending trends within the U.S. So you're seeing somewhat faster recovery right now. In addition, the U.S. had a huge stimulus package, which is something they did get right, and that has helped uh, sustain consumer spending. Again, another factor that we're watching going forward. That's a great point. As we look forward to the election, are there sectors or industries that are trading right now based on those election expectations? 
So, you know, Shannon, as, we, as you well know, and we talk about quite frequently within the investment team, for the most part, we're very focused on the fundamentals, and the fundamentals dictate stocks over the long term. So generally, uh, the political aspects have a very small impact on stocks in the near term because the impact there's not a large impact on earnings. However, we do recognize that people uh, love to try to uh, anticipate where elections are going to go and, and play the near-term sentiment on stocks. So some of the stocks in areas that will benefit based on the trading of and, and how sentiment impacts uh, where the stocks go uh, would be companies in the industrial sector, which would be tied to infrastructure spending, assuming you get a Democratic sweep and a Democratic uh, victory in both the White House and the Senate. So companies like Rockwell Collins, uh, RSG, uh would companies that are more levered to U.S. infrastructure spending, um, Martin Marietta, Vulcan Materials, um, also companies levered to green spending uh, and renewable energy, such as Solar Edge or Enphase or Sunrun. So those would be companies that would benefit from a Democratic sweep. If the Republicans continue to maintain uh, control of at least the Senate and the White House as well, then obviously some of the opposite companies would benefit. Your oil and gas would have a better chance of benefiting. Um, so it, it, but again, all of those will be more near-term trades based on changes in sentiment, and that the longer impact from uh, on the earnings side will be less material. And obviously, as you mentioned, that's what we focused on. And we continue to reiterate to our clients how important it is to keep that long-term perspective in mind. Um, just curious, uh, you know, I know this is something we also talk about in terms of the next, you know, three, five, seven, ten years as far as our clients' typical investment horizon. But um, what's your view on how we close out this year for U.S. stocks? Sure. So predictions are difficult particularly about the future. So we generally try to look at uh, stocks and the market in general from a risk-reward perspective. And we can easily make an argument for the S&P closing out at 4,000. That would be about 24 times uh, price earnings multiple times about a $170 in earnings. Uh, it is a possibility. Um, on the other hand, we can make an argument for around 2,700. That'd be a price earnings multiple about 18 times on about 150 in earnings. So it's, again, in the near term, sentiment will definitely drive the stocks and markets can stay uh, at higher valuation ranges than uh, what we've historically seen for longer than people would expect. It makes it a little difficult to, uh, to try to forecast things based on changes in sentiment. However, from a risk-reward perspective, to stay at the higher end of that range, we think that uh, that does increase the risk, and it also increases the likelihood of a potential pullback or sell-off in the market, which in, in these extended valuations would be healthy. At some point, we'll need the earnings growth to catch up to where the valuations are. And just for some historical perspective, for the most part, uh, the past 20, 30 years, the S&P 500 has traded at about a 16 times price to earnings ratio. So 
even in our downside scenario, we have a, we're using a price earnings ratio above the past and the 30 year average. Great. Thank you so much, Rich. We really appreciate your thoughts on the equity market and, and what we have ahead of us. Um, Ryan, I'm going to shift gears to you. Uh, and obviously, bonds are a bit more challenging as of late. And we've talked about bonds and fixed income in general in several of our podcasts. So I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, first, with this zero interest rate policy in place, how have bonds performed since the bounce back post lockdown? Yeah, you know, bonds have performed well. I mean, um, you know, Treasury rates have mostly remained stable uh, really since the since the end of March when you had that big move downward. Um, you know, the, the the most dramatic change has, and you mentioned this, has been credit spreads. So um, pretty dramatic recovery in credit spreads from where they were uh, back in March. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve is here to to backstop markets. They've they've expressed that. Uh, confidence has returned. Companies have been able to issue, you know, to access the new issue bond markets to short balance sheets. Um, you know, credit spreads measure the amount of perceived risk in the market overall in terms of the credit markets. You know, the fact that spreads are actually close to pre-COVID levels and liquidity has improved somewhat is is definitely a positive sign uh, overall. So uh, that tightening in credit spreads has been a real tailwind towards. Um, some of the spread sectors, such as uh, corporate bonds, um, you know, high yield, even mortgage-backed securities. So, if we look at sort of the you know relative opportunities that are available now, um, I know that's a question you get a lot. <laughs> um, you know, what are the rel- what are these opportunities in the high-quality universe? You know, both on the taxable side and also on the tax-exempt side. Yeah, so in investment grade corporate bond markets and municipal bond markets look close to fully valued to us, um, although we have been able to find some pockets of value in triple B rated securities um, in the investment grade space. Um, you know, some of the names that are trading wider and offer some more yield are the names you'd expect in some of the some of the beaten down sectors, such as, um, you know, uh, leisure, hospitality, et cetera. So um, to the extent that you can uh, take a leap of faith that we're going to have a pretty strong recovery, um, you could invest there. We're not quite there yet. Um, we've actually been kind of keeping things a little bit safer, um, which we sort of do anyway. Um, and actually looking outside those two sectors, um, buying some more taxable uh, municipal securities as well, if, if the value is there, um, and also buying, actually adding some high quality mortgage-backed securities to, uh, to accounts, um, which compared to corporate bonds currently are higher quality, more liquid, and also have equivalent yields um, in this current environment. So. Um, playing a little bit of the defense uh, here. Makes sense. Um, speaking of defense or offense, depending on how you want to see it, um, how have the high yield markets reacted to some of that improving economic data that I mentioned earlier? And what are the risks in investing in these lower quality issuers, given the Fed's massive intervention as a whole in the market? Right. So high yield markets have mostly seen inflows uh, since March of this year. It's been pretty... Um, um, you know, since those those uh, dark days back in March, it's been pretty much, um, you know, some pretty strong returns since then. Uh, you know, for many investors, high yield has been appealing because it sort of sits between high quality bonds and equities from a risk return perspective. Um, but the challenge um, is now in valuation once again. So um, credit spreads are tight. Yields are around, you know, call it five and a quarter percent. The all time low in yield is around five percent. So you know, you're not leaving much room for error there. 
Um, and we certainly don't think we're out of the woods yet um, economically um, due to COVID. Um, and also you mentioned the, you know, the intervention by the Fed. It's important to remember that, that most high yield issuers do not qualify for direct support from the Fed. So um, although they are um, buying um, high yield ETFs broadly, um, they do not qualify for specific uh, direct support if, if they were to sort of uh, um, get in trouble. So we talked a little bit about treasuries and the yield curve. And so just for our listeners' benefit, can you talk a little bit about what could help steepen the yield curve over the next several months? Sure. So, you know, the market is expecting the Fed to keep short-term rates uh, near zero through 2023, if not longer. You know, that that will pretty much anchor front-end yields. And, you know, any sort of economic improvement that we get, hopefully will steepen the yield curve. You know, strong signs of economic improvement would help. Positive vaccine news, of course, would help steepen the curve as the market sort of becomes more comfortable that a economic recovery is, is on its way. Even a, a Biden presidential win or a, a Democratic sweep, the consensus is that would actually increase yields. You know, with increased spending, you know, would hopefully repair the economy on the sooner side, maybe bring forward that time in terms of, or shorten that time, I should say, where the Fed has to keep rates low for longer. So in that that Biden win and a Democratic sweep, Democratic sweep scenario um, is probably the has the most upside in terms of um, in terms of yields um, and, and steepness. You know, you are kind of seeing that already happen in the market right now. It, you know, the the steepness of the curve, as measured by the twos ten spread, is at the steepest it's been all year or close to that. And you've seen that steepen as um, you know the perceived chances of a Biden win have have increased overall. Interesting. I've got one final thought or question for you, just going back to something you said about um, our utilization of the triple B bond space and portfolios. That's been one that's had a lot of emphasis or focus over the last several years as a, as a potential source of risk. Do you feel like the concerns about the triple B space have been pushed out, given the fact that rates are now once again at very low levels and, you know, the threat of refinancing at higher rates has been pushed out by several more years? Yeah, we do. It's a, it's a good question. I think um, it's an important distinction to make. And we always remind uh, clients that, you know, triple B securities are a large part of the market. You know, it has that moniker of triple B, but these are high quality companies. These are big companies, importantly. And like you said, they've been access, able to access the market uh, to a large extent, shoring up balance sheets, pushing out maturities, you know, biding time till um, you know earnings improve, and so you know we're, we're we feel pretty good about about you know buying triple Bs overall. It still offers some somewhat attractive yields, and as I mentioned, it's a big part of the market, and these are pretty high quality companies overall. Great, thanks so much, Rich Ryan. Thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks again to our listeners for tuning into this week's podcast. I want to encourage all of you to reach out to our team here at Boston Private with any questions or concerns you may have. Providing guidance and support as a trusted advisor is our mission. If you have any questions or thoughts on our points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives on the markets, the economy, taxes, estate planning, the election, as well as the commentaries from Rich and Ryan by visiting bostonprivate.com. If you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters while you're there. And be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. I look forward to coming to you again next week. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.